No, it's good to be here. Very excited to, to be part of Epiphany and to see how uh, the Lord is using Pastor Joe and his family and others that are committed to serve here. I, I met Joe years ago at Liberty Church in Philly, probably 04, before he was married. And we were serving uh, Friday nights, feeding the homeless. I said, you guys are getting married, the two of you. And uh, of course they did, so they're married now, which is great. Not really a, pr a prophetic thing here, pretty obvious. But anyway, we're going to be talking about communion tonight. So you can turn your Bibles to, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Yeah, you can pull that one out. There you go. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17 to 32 is where we'll be. So my background is Calvary Chapel, and we, you know, verse by verse as well, which is all good, and so we're going to do some of that tonight. But if you turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word tonight that is true and holy and as we study it, I pray that you would teach us. Teach us your ways that we would walk in your will, that we'd know your pleasure, that we would understand that you're good. And so we pray your blessing now over this time we have together and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a practice that Christians have been doing for thousands of years. Communion. Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, some would call it. And whether that's the priest administering it with the wafer and the cup, some of you know the, the passing of the plate, the little bits of crackers and the little tiny cups of juice. What is this all about? Why is it so important for Christians to take part in this holy thing? We started this new series called Starting Over. And Pastor Joe talked about baptism, what it is and what it isn't. Of course, it's not something magical. It's the sign and the seal of the new covenant, the new deal, the new agreement that Jesus brought into this world for the church. And it's what you do when you get saved. It's that public profession of your newfound faith. So communion, what it means, what we're talking about tonight is what it is, what, what it means, and who is it for, and why is it so important? See, it's not about whether we have wine or grape juice, or if it's leavened or unleavened bread, or the little cracker or the big loaf. It's not because of Christians been doing it so long. I guess we should do it too. The tradition, let's just carry it on. And it's not about your performance before the Lord but understanding that without Jesus in our lives, we have nothing of value for eternity. Nothing that really matters. So let's look at that word, communion. What does it mean? The Bible in the Greek, koinonia. It just means to share with one another in an intimate bond. It also could be a shared contribution, much like Raising some funds for someone in need. We all get together and say, this is a need. Let's meet that need. Doing what the Christians should be doing. 
And we see that word used many times in the Bible. We see it as fellowship. What fellowship has light with darkness? 2 Corinthians 6.14. Fellowship in the gospel, the participation in the gospel of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.5. And then fellowship in His sufferings, in Jesus' sufferings, Philippians 3.10. So when we think about communion, it's not something casual. It's not something we take lightly and just say, well, here, here comes the cup, here comes the juice and the, and the crackers, let's just keep it moving and not really take it of significance. No, it's really something deep. The Apostle Paul writes this letter to the people of Corinth about this issue of, around the Lord's Supper, we call it. The Lord's Supper, communion. And Corinth was an ancient city in Greece. It was about 40 miles away from Athens. And this particular city was known for their wealth and luxurious living. And being grossly immoral. They just did everything to the full. Drink, eat, be merry. The majority of the Christians here happened to be non-Jewish. And so tonight, as we look at the, the first uh, letter to Corinthians in chapter 11, verse 17, first thing I wanted to say is that the Lord's Supper is not something to be treated commonly. Let's just read verses 17 to 22. 1 Corinthians 11. Now, in giving this instruction, I don't praise you. Since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together... As a church, there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. Indeed, it is necessary that there be factions among you, so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. When you come together then, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this manner. So Paul, if you know this guy in any capacity, he's not somebody that really speaks lightly. He's not really there to sugarcoat it and just to speak to the faint of heart. In fact, if a, if a counselor today was to talk to Paul, he'd say, hey, Paul, could you tone it down a little bit? It's a little heavy what you're saying. I mean, people are going to be hurt by this, but that's not his style. You know, he's in the middle of, of giving this instruction to these Gentile Christians, Gentiles just being those that are not Jewish. And here in 17, he says to them openly, guys, I'm not pleased with you. Why? Well, there, there's a few issues going on, but from a practical standpoint, they're not the most educated. They're not the highest class. They're not the most influential. This is what we know about the Christians here. And Paul's pointing out in verse 17, when they come together, it's not for the better. And when Christians come together, that, it's always for the better, right? We come together to worship. That should always be a good thing. But Paul is saying, you know, when you guys come together, it's not so good. And he says in, in verse 18 that he hears about these divisions that are going on here. And he actually affirms them. He says, there's factions, there's these dissensions. Some of you have differing opinions. But you know what? That's okay for now because what I want to do is identify what's going on and why that is. We're going to call out some things. But they both can't be right. 
know, there's a reason that this is happening, right? So not everybody can be right at the same time. You can't have two contradictory statements be both right and wrong. Could something be cold and hot at the same time? Can't be. It's ridiculous. Could something be true and false? No. So here, in regard to the Corinthian believers, Paul is showing us that divisions are the result of those that are living a life of honor to God and those that are living a life of dishonor to God. Maybe a combination of the two. What he's clear about here is that those that are approved need to be recognized. Interesting, another word for the, the word approved is accepted with regard to pleasing Jesus. It's really those that are living right need to be called out. In fact, the church is known as the called out ones, the ecclesia. That's who we are. We're, we're a different people. And it's interesting, he says here, he, he doesn't wish to, to call out those that are doing wrong. You know, it's not God's approach to condemn people, to say, all right, all you wrong, I'm going to just call you out and in public shame identify your bad behavior. That's not what God's into. It's important to consider that as we understand the Bible and how we communicate that to others, it's not a shaming thing. In verse 20, Paul says, Christians come together for worship and it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. So what's happening? How is that? Aren't all Christians supposed to come together and and take part in communion and do that once a month or every quarter or every week? Why would the church in Corinth not eat of the Lord's Supper? But he explains that in verse 21 when it's mealtime. Each of the Christians, what they used to do is come together and have a big meal and to this excess, have their steak and potatoes and burgers and fries. And what they basically say is, all right, we're going to have the fries. And okay, this is the body of Christ. And here's our, our Coca-Cola. We're going to drink that. And that represents the blood of Jesus. That, that was kind of the context of what they were doing before coming to church. They would just take communion at home and say, oh, this, this works. We'll just throw it in with our, our normal excessive huge meal. I guess that would work well for us as Americans. We like big meals. I like to eat. But here, of course, Paul's saying, you know, there's something not right about that. Just taking something that's really holy and just saying, well, it's, it's part of the main meal. I think that's crazy, but there, there was a Super Bowl ad. We're not going to play it, but it didn't air. 2011, it starts like this. The pastor's thinking to himself, what are we going to do to reach the people? How are we going to get people to come into the church? What are we going to do? He says to the elder, why don't we get some Doritos and Pepsi? So here they are, all the, the people are coming in, and they, they come to the forward to the front, and they take a chip, and you know how they do it on the commercials, the crunch. So you're like, wow, that, I, I really want some Dorito. They crunch the Dorito and drink the Pepsi, and it's like, okay, we, we're, we're bringing the people in. Obviously, that's ridiculous. It's a good thing they didn't air it. That probably would have been offensive. It's funny, but at the same time, it's pretty, pretty terrible. Actually, uh, another example here on a separate tone, in in a Methodist church in Vineland, New Jersey, about 34 miles south of here, there was a dentist. His last name was, what do you think? Grape juice. Think grape juice. Welch. You know this. Okay. Thomas Welch said, let's pasteurize grape juice so that we can have it in church and not have to drink wine. 
So in Vineland, in, in the Methodist church in Vineland, he came up with a process to do that and sell it to other churches. And now Welch's grape juice, everybody knows that. And that's our little claim to fame here in New Jersey. We got, we got Welch's that started right here from a church. So you could tell that to somebody. But here's the deal. There's different denominations and variety of form in communion. You know, some are going to say it has to be grape juice. Some are going to say it has to be the wine. Some are going to say it has to be a loaf of bread that you use, and you have to break off the bread and dip it into the cup. And others are going to say, no, let's just pass the cracker. But it has to be leavened. No, 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 we're going to say it be, it be unleavened. And some are going to say, well, we'll give you the freedom to choose in your church, however you want to do it. And that's the key here, is that we don't believe in the form so much as it being this way or that. It's the important thing in what it represents. See, it's not becoming the body and blood of Jesus. We don't believe that it actually changes over into those forms. But we do believe that when we take the juice or the wine and we ingest it, we remember what Jesus' blood poured out for us. We take the cup, we take the bread, or we take the cracker, and we eat the cracker. We're remembering his body that was broken for us. And Paul offers these strong words to the Corinthian church with their lavish meals. He's, he's really chastising them and saying, guys, you're the way they had it set up was they had these class structures and it was really heavily divided where the upper class and the lower classes and the, these upper class Christians were like, we're going to have our meal to the full and we're going to eat it up and drink but we're not going to pay any attention to those that are hungry, those that don't have anything. So here they are getting drunk in church and drinking and eating, and while others that are in need are being neglected. There's a message there. That grieved the heart of Paul, but it grieves the heart of God even more. When you neglect the poor, you're neglecting Jesus himself. And Proverbs talks about this, the rich having many friends, but the, the poor are too often neglected. Paul is telling them, hey, you want to have a meal? Have a nice meal at home, a modest meal. But don't show up to church getting drunk. He's got nothing to say that's good to them. So the Lord's Supper is something that's not common. Number two, the Lord's Supper is a public pro uh, proclamation. It's not something we do in private, in this little room. We don't want anybody to see, and no one else can be in the room. No, it's a public thing, and there's a reason for that. Let's look at that. Verses 23 to 26. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he'd given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In verse 23, it's important to note that Paul isn't making this up. He's not saying, God, I have this new thing that I want you to do. It's really cool. I mean, this is going to be really deep what I'm going to talk about right now. No, no, he's, he's pointing right back to what Jesus did himself. And it's significant. As you see, 
what Paul says in the language that he's passing on that which he received from the Lord Jesus. He's passing that on. And he's got an obligation to do it. He doesn't say, well, no, I'm not really sure, Lord, I want to do that with your people because they might, be, they might take it the wrong way. They might think it's something else. They might think that they're into some kind of cannibalism. But in fact, they were accused of that at that time. Jesus, you know, eating the, the bread and saying, this is my body and the blood, the, the juice, this is my, my blood. People thought, man, these guys are weird. They're drinking Jesus' blood. They're eating his flesh. I mean, what is going on? But you see, Paul does not care about pleasing man. His concern is about honoring the Lord Jesus. So it's important to note, it's not something new. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus did this. Before all of his followers, all of his disciples, and they, they all wondered, what is going on? How, how is this possible that he's going to be betrayed and, take, and die on a cross? That made no sense to them. So he holds up this piece of bread and he said, this is my actual body. And he broke it. Before he did that, he gave thanks. You see the picture that's happening here, Jesus giving thanks for his own body being broken before all the world to see. And that picture is of wonder. It's as if I was to do that and to break bread and say, this is before I, my body's broken. I don't know if I would be quick to give thanks. And the message in there is, how quick are we to give thanks when we're going through suffering? We say, do we ever give thanks when we suffer? You say, you're crazy. What are you, what are you talking about? I'll give thanks to God when the Eagles win the Super Bowl, okay? That's when I'm going to give thanks. No, you say, it makes no sense. You say, God, how come it's going this way? You say, it's not fair. That's that expect give thanks for my suffering. We consider God's promise to us. What, what does He say? What does He promise us? He says, All things work together for the good of those that love God and are called according to His purpose. Doesn't say some things, doesn't say whatever He feels like it. All things work together for the good of those that love God. So we can give thanks when we're facing joblessness when we're facing sickness, when we're facing pain. Why? Because that is not in vain. Your, your suffering is not for some futile end. No, that, that is for a purpose that God has set. And in verse 24, the reason that Jesus would go through so much suffering on the cross is for you. He did that for you. Why would He do that? So that you would know Him. Not primarily that you would go to heaven, although that is definitely a benefit. Not primarily that you would have eternal life, although that is awesome. But that you would know Him. You've heard it said that it's all about relationships. You want to be successful in business, in your marriage, with your kids, in your community. You work on good relationships. That, that comes from, from God. You want to have eternal life, you got to know Jesus. You want to live, you have to die. You want to be first, you have to be last. Verse 25, we see what happens when Jesus takes the cup. He says, this is the cup of my new covenant, of the new covenant in my blood. 
Okay, that's a pretty heavy thing. If you were Jewish, you would understand the relationship of the Jewish people and God under the Old Covenant. 613 laws, however many it was that they had to follow. The deal was, offer the sacrifice for sin continually. Often, yearly, every season, every feast. Offer the sacrifice to cover the people's sins. To cover. Not to remove, but to cover. So that had to keep on happening. And the Jewish people understood that, man, this someday this is going to be done. We're not going to have to keep doing this all the time. We're going to have a Messiah that's going to take away all the sin. He's going to be the once and for all sacrifice. And He's going to complete the work. And we don't have to continue to, to labor in these sacrifices for our sins just to be covered. See, the Jewish people know that without the shedding of blood, there could be no sacrifice for sin. That's why Jesus shed His blood. Did you know that? That's why He had to do that. He was a perfect, spotless lamb. No blemish. When they brought the lambs into the temple to sacrifice them, they would try to get the, the lamb that was without the most blemishes. Let's see if we can get the purest lamb. But Jesus, you see, is the spotless lamb. Is the once and for all lamb. This is a huge deal. So this new covenant that He brings, He declares before you and me today, trust in me, Jesus says, I'll take care of the sin problem. Trust in me, I've become sin for you that you might become the very righteousness of God. This is why Jesus commands us to take part in communion. Because it's a remembrance of what Jesus did for us. And what is our response to that? Well, it's got to be humility. It's got to be adoration. It's got to be awe. It's got to be, I can't believe that God would go to such lengths for me to do that. To bring me into a right relationship with the Father. And we're ingesting that reality of what Jesus did for us. We take the bread and we chew it and we consider Jesus' broken body. We drink the cup and we remember His blood that was shed for us. And you see in verse 26, as you do this, you eat the bread, drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Think about that. A proclamation is not done in private. A proclamation is done in public. And when we take part in the communion elements, we're taking part in a proclamation of what Jesus did until He comes. That means He's coming back. So it's not a private ceremony. No, not at all. It's a public display, and we're proclaiming Jesus' death on the cross. We're proclaiming the power of God unto salvation. We're proclaiming Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. But wait, this is a pretty serious thing. Who's supposed to take part in this? This is so holy. That's the last point. I'm doing pretty well here. The Lord's Supper is very serious and holy. Let's read verses 27 to 32. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. 
For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned with the world. So Paul's talking about taking part in this practice, this ordinance that is so holy, don't do it in an unworthy manner. What's the word that he uses here? Well, the word in the Greek just means irreverently. So to revere something is to have a deep respect for it. If you've ever been to the 9-11 memorial in New York City, you wouldn't simply run around the memorial and say, oh, look at the waterfalls and the people and the lights and just kind of pass on through casually. None of us would do that. Would you? I wouldn't do that. I didn't do that when I visited. There's a respect and a reverence because there's people that died on that day. Now consider the most important human act of all history is Jesus' death on the cross, and we're just going to take the Lord's Supper and just casually drink and eat and move on. How much more so? And that's what Paul's talking about here. The Lord's Supper is not for somebody that doesn't believe. It's not for somebody that says, I don't know about this Jesus, although that's okay to to have questions and and, and want to know more, but this is something reserved for His church, His bride, His people. Because as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, you're recognizing that you believe in what He did for you. And when you proclaim this With the communion elements, you're proclaiming something very holy and powerful and personally meaningful to you. So the Lord's Supper, not it's it's for only those that are Christian. But you see, Jesus isn't into excluding people. He doesn't want to just say, "Well, yeah, they're for my people, but those that are outside, you know, I, I can't really talk about that to you." No, he he wants to invite you to come to him. Come to him first and say, "Lord Jesus, you are God." I want to know you. I want to know the power of your sufferings. I want to understand the freedom that comes from a relationship with you. And that can happen. You can pray. You can can do that. And God will do a work in your life. He will not turn you away. And then when you take part in the elements, it can really mean something. You can take the juice and the the crackers and say, you know, I, I grew up with this. This was something we always did. I came up and dipped it and the priest gave it to me. But... Now it's just something different. Yeah, that's good. That's good. That's what we want to see. And that's the prayer that God wants to hear if you're not following Jesus. What must I do to be saved? I want to know you. And that's our prayer for you. To get saved, to become a Christian, to get baptized, and then take part in your first communion. Why does it matter to get baptized first? You might say, well, that's kind of weird. Why would you do that? Well, we we really want you to understand that baptism is the first step in Christian obedience. Why do I say that? Jesus said in what we call the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19, He says, go into the whole world and make disciples. What's the first thing He says? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So you can see, it's the first directive. It's make disciples, comma, baptizing them. So is it a law? 
Do you have to? No, it's not an absolute law, but we think it's a good idea. And we want to encourage you to do that. When we launch in March 18th, we get people, folks get baptized. We want you to take part in communion after you've been baptized. See, we want you to understand why we do what we do. We don't just show up to church and do the thing and check the box and then move on out. Now, this is something that's so meaningful and that Christians have been doing for thousands of years. But for us, we want to understand it and know what we believe and why we believe it. This is so important. So what happens when, when they take part in communion in an unworthy manner? Well, first Paul says, as a Christian, what you need to do is examine yourself before the Lord. And what does that look like? It's like, let's get quiet. God, I know that I have a lot of sin and junk in my life. And let me just confess that before you. And let me just understand that your grace is even greater than what I even thought. See, it's not about perfect Christians coming together and saying, we've got it all together. we got no issues, man. I don't need to spend much time in examining. No, it's not like that at all. We're all broken people. But when we come before something so holy, we really want to take it seriously. And we want to take our time before the Lord and say, Lord, just help me out. I just really need you. I've been struggling. I need your grace. And see, what happens is when you forget about what th this is about, when you forget about the, the, holy, the, the sacredness of, of the elements, Paul's saying you're inviting judgment. It's like, whoa, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Judgment. Talking about if I take part in the communion elements and do it in the wrong way, I'm going to hell? No, it's not what he's saying. He's saying take it seriously here. Not haphazardly, not carelessly, not forgetting what it means. But the judgment that he's talking about is some Christians, in verse 30, you'll see, they're falling sick. Some are falling asleep. What does that mean? They're dying. That means that they're going home a little bit early to see the Lord. Now, if you fall sick after we've taken communion, am I going to knock on your door or Pastor Joe and say, hey man, did you, did you take that in the wrong way? Because I just want to check on you here. No. We, that's not, not what we're saying in, at, at all. But what Paul is trying to drive home is that we need to have a reverence for God, a, a holy reverence before the Lord. Not take it lightly. He, see, he says that the, the Lord disciplines His children. He disciplines us because He loves us. And so when you do get disciplined as, as a if you're a follower of Jesus and God disciplines you, don't, don't count it as something that's like, man, God, why are you trying to mess with me again? Why are you doing that? He does it because He loves you. And I want to close by just saying that we all desperately need Jesus. I don't care if you're far from God or you've been walking with Him and you're, and you're in His Word and you're, here in his, and you're being obedient to His call in your life. We need Him desperately. Every moment of the day. Every hour. So I don't want us to, to, to miss the point here. Three things. Lord's Supper, not to be treated commonly. It's a public proclamation for every follower of Jesus, and it's something serious and holy. So I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to ask a blessing over you. 
Father, we thank You for Your Word tonight. And that we can trust You with our lives and that what You've done for us on the cross is the most powerful picture of love. There's no greater love than this for a man to lay down his life and You've done that for us. So I pray that this Your Word would instill in us a a reverence for you and and, and an awe that the God of the universe who existed outside of time, who always has been, always is, and always will be, would come down from heaven, dwell as a man, live a, a perfectly sinless life, and then die on a cross and be spat on and be tortured and to endure it without any recourse or any response, but simply knowing the power of what you did, Jesus, on the cross. So I pray your blessing now. In Jesus' name, amen.